if you're uh, a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're part of the LGBTQI community, if you're a uh, poor working class migrant refugee living with a disability, you know, all the things that aren't just a cis gendered straight able-bodied middle upper class white man in the west of course you feel like an imposter literally all of society has been designed to make you feel like an imposter hi and welcome to the force of nature podcast with me clover hogan today's episode is with mariam pasha master storyteller director of tedx london and the founder of x equals with a background in the human rights and charity sector Mariam found her piece of the jigsaw, helping people tell their stories and to give life to their ideas, especially people made to feel like imposters. In this episode, we discuss overcoming our inner gremlins, the rise of armchair experts, the key to persuading anyone, and how to create a world where no one's left behind. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding of the strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. So, Mariam, thank you for coming on the podcast. So excited to be here. My first question for you is, why do you help people tell their stories? First is, I think that as a society, we need to hear new ideas and new stories from new storytellers, because I think that's where we're going to find the solutions to the big problems that we're facing. But I also think it's unreasonable to think that people or groups of people who've never been listened to before or never been encouraged to speak are all just going to spontaneously start speaking in an eloquent, persuasive way. So that's why I think you kind of have to help that process along. The other side of it is, and something I've come to more recently, is that I think speaking and telling your story is healing. One of my favorite psychologists speaks to the stories that we assume in terms of costumes that we wear and the ability to kind of unzip from certain costumes and certain stories when they no longer serve us mm. and how we can begin to do that by creating a little bit of objective distance from the thoughts and feelings that we often feel so consumed by. Um, I'm curious to hear what some of those costumes have looked like in your own life, perhaps that you've reflected on and thought, you know, this is no longer serving me and, and what the catalyst was for that. I felt like such an outsider for so long because the stories that society told of me were ones of not belonging. I embraced it. As a, as, a, as a survival technique. I think lots of people in alternative communities do this. I then thought that because I was an outsider, there were lots of things that were not for me, like, like lots of life experiences and lots of, I don't know, whatever it might be that, that I could no longer access or should no longer access or didn't want to access anymore. And then um, something very odd happened is that I wanted to access one of them and I found it very difficult. So in essence, um, I got engaged last year. Congratulations. Thank you. I never want, in my whole life, I never wanted to get married. Mm -hmm. I still think marriage is like a corrupt institution. I do not like the idea of like the ownership that it used to imply and all the, all this, all of the stuff that we've all heard. It's almost a cliche now, right? Except the thing is I, I fell in love with someone so, who's so amazing. And, and for a long time, I had this thing of like, when are they going to ask me? 
Mm. And I hated that narrative because that wasn't me because I never wanted it, right? I was never supposed to have wanted this because I'm not mainstream. <laughs> um, and so I struggled with that for a really long time. Yeah. And then one day, and this is what the story is about, it just came to me fully formed as like an idea of how I was going to ask him to marry me. Mm. And I didn't know the transformative power it would have because the clothes I was wearing at the time was this isn't for me, I'm, you know, this person. By asking him to marry me, and by the way, he did say yes, so it was a happy <laughs> story. Um, I was able to all of a sudden access a whole thing that I thought was inaccessible. One big one, the, another big one that I've, I've felt a lot in my life is the, the kind of idea of being the imposter. I've, I struggled with imposter syndrome for so long in my life. Like that real feeling of like, I am faking it, I'm a fraud, I'm wearing this confident comfortable uh knowledgeable intelligent costume mm. and inside i'm just none of those things and it's going to start showing soon and someone's going to figure it out when did that imposter syndrome bubble up to the surface most extremely i moved to america to new york when i was 13 in the uk i was a top student i was a geek i had no friends but i was great at school <laughs> you know um in the US, I could understand the system and I started to like fail out of my classes mm. and I never really recovered until my senior year. So I, I never really felt smart again. And so then when I did get into an incredibly good university in Canada and went there, um, one of the top in the world, I was like, wow, why'd they let me in here? Mm. Imposter syndrome makes you, it makes you very scared, right? That people are going to find out that you aren't the right person for this job and so what that that the knock-on effect of that is you isolate yourself so right. i started to isolate myself in my work i wouldn't um i wouldn't let people in i wouldn't tell them about what i was doing i would like hide away and do the work and then i would get really upset that no one was engaging with me or value what i was doing mm -hmm. if you're uh, a person of color if you're a woman if you're a part of the lgbtqi community if you're a uh, poor working class migrant refugee living with a disability you know all the things that aren't just a cis gendered straight able-bodied middle upper class white man in the west mm -hmm. um i feel all of those boxes but one <laughs> <laughs> of course you feel like an imposter literally all of society has been designed to make you feel like an imposter yeah. you're, you're basically told in in subtle and not so subtle, in conscious and unconscious ways through your entire life that you don't belong here. Mm. So then, surprise, surprise, you grow up thinking you don't belong here. And then people like me come along being like, oh, it's just in your head, you need to figure it out. No, yes, there was stuff going on in your mind, sure, but it's also societal programming. Mm. And it's just another way that we make people feel bad about themselves to say that it's the, the individual responsibility. It's not. It's, it's like, the society we live in and it's the more we tell people oh is there something wrong with you mm. the less we take the collective responsibility around it yeah absolutely and I think and that's it, it there is so much 
onus and emphasis on the individual isn't there and i think it's also a kind of like manifestation of this sort of like positivist psychology which is really you know it's about mastering your mindset and it's being your best and brightest self and all of those things and yet it completely disregards the systems in which we operate and it continues to perpetuate as well this kind of idea that we're these you know fully autonomous rational creatures that are just responding to you know stimuli exactly um and it it completely denies the human experience i'm middle eastern background and so i don't necessarily have a love for collectivist societies either because Mm. i see i see the pressures they put on women i see the way that they suppress like certain kinds of like sexual gender identity you know i i think that idea of that like the good like for the good of the whole is as damaging as the as the individualistic kind of perspective of like as for the good of the individual but I think like so many things in life, why is it one extreme or the other? Mm. Like the the whole point is that the, the I think happiness lies in the middle. Absolutely. There was an interesting theory that I was reading up on recently, which was looking at mythology mm. throughout human history and the different myths and narratives that we have subscribed to. And it first unpacked, you know, religion and dogma and control and very much this kind of like dominion complex. And then how we transitioned into the world of science, which is very much like machinistic kind yeah. of thinking and reductionism and, and breaking things into their parts. And most recently, the paradigm we're in is one that is economic, where everything is commodified be it nature and appreciating the tree not for the tree but for the table or the paper it provides or as human beings you know realizing the nine to five um so true what (laughs) if we talk about those overarching kind of narratives from your view from your standpoint how does that narrative need to evolve and how can we get better at not only telling the stories that are going to bridge there, um, but identifying where those pockets of the future are in the present. I got to hear George Bombayo speak um, this summer, this past summer at TED Summit in Love Edinburgh. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, m- massive fan. Love his writing. Um, and he spoke about the idea of the restoration myth. Mm-hmm. This idea that we we don't have a, a restoration myth that works for modern times. And it made me think a lot about that, about, you know, do we have a narrative that's working for us? And by that, I mean, there are some narratives that are working really well. They're just not working for people who believe in what you and I believe in, right. if you think about it. Yes. The, the narrative of the far right yeah. is working very well. Islamophobia works. Mm. It, it, it's a tool that people use to gain power and dominance, and it's effective because people allow it to happen. So there are narratives that are working very, very well. What we don't have is a progressive cosmopolitan narrative that is working. Why? On the right, it's easy to have a monolithic Mm. kind of uh singular story everyone subscribes to it yeah because because the right doesn't value diversity on the left you value diversity so you value the difference and you value the many which doesn't lend itself to having really good singular narratives right Mm. it lends itself to having lots of pluralistic voices and so we're stuck in this kind of tug of war and i think you touched on something super important which is the whole idea of progressivism is inclusivity and creating the space for multiplicity and diverse stories and Mm. diverse opinions and I've even found myself referring to this idea that we need to create you know a better story of the future and yet I'm speaking in a very singular term like the future isn't some stable construct it needs to be 
the the multitude of stories into which people can project themselves so they can begin to bridge and understand what that is going to look like for them but it it it's something that we're so desperately in need of especially in the sustainability kind of climate space is what that looks like and we're okay at kind of projecting the utopian vision of what a society could look like um but it's super reductionist and we are not trying hard enough to actually bridge between what today and tomorrow looks like the whole point of everything i do mm. is about getting these new voices in right these new uh stories to talk about and to be able to contribute to creating these new futures that work for lots of different kinds of people the question is are we ever going to be able to find a way to bring that all together mm. um or will we have to u- utilize some other form of humanity to do that like a greater external threat yeah i mean and that's the tricky thing though is like with mounting with a mounting sense of scarcity coupled with overwhelm mm. in the face of these big messy challenges it's so easy to revert to you know tribal kind mm. of mentality and looking back rather than being able to look forward in the face of uncertainty we have a scarcity mentality for everything that is not scarce and an, an abundance mentality for everything that is scarce interesting so when it comes to like the environment and mm. a natural world we just think we can take as much as we want and it's going right. to be fine mm-hmm. but when it comes to things like being able to love or be more than have more than one identity or have enough jobs in your country for all the people who've lived there for three generations and all the people who want to come in or you know all of these things where actually we've been taught that the world is either or mm. and actually it's both and yeah and we project our own stories onto other people of course you know this savior complex mm. that is very <laughs> holier than thou yeah. and kind of yeah it's just you're you're so beholden to your own ego when you're c- communicating from that place yeah. that you're not actually working in the interest of solving these problems no. because obviously that has to be done from a place of inclusivity yeah. and it's one of the one of the challenges that I found even working in the kind of youth climate space when you're protesting and you're pointing the finger at these institutions of power is that you strip them of their humanity and in doing so you hold yourself in a in a relationship of dependency with those people in positions of power um because there is so much kind of projection happening but if you can if you can take all of that away and say actually i'm trying my best and so too are you i mean that's been a really big turnaround in my mind even coming from the not-for-profit space and then engaging with corporates and i'm like i love you as a human being and you're amazing but you too feel powerless as a corporate executive in the same way that 11 year old does protesting in the street all my friends went into like uh the un politics human rights ngos all of all of that you know Mm. international development (laughs) so i came out at at when i was like 20 whatever however 21 2021 from 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 my undergrad with that worldview Mm. that it's us and them i don't think you know 36 year old or 35 year old me is as as aligned maybe Mm. with 25 year old me here because i think I'm less skeptical of corporates because I think that they're not what they were 10 or 15 years ago. You know, that's that's part of it is that people, you have to allow people to change. What I have witnessed that scares me a little bit operating in the kind of like business world is that you see that light in their eyes um, of, you know, a past self who had all of the kind of dreams and ambitions of the young people today before those dreams were kind of pushed into the furnace of the industrial complex <laughs> and they've they're now having to operate in a system where responsibility is to their family and actually maintaining the status quo because they've been the beneficiaries and the architects of that 
system. And so it's how can we bring together the kind of radicalism, naive optimism, energy of young people with the knowledge of experience yeah. and and the knowledge of failure and making mistakes? Like how can yeah. we create those kind of synergies? Um, my my in my first year of my psychology degree, I learned probably one of the most valuable things, which was this idea of the hedonic treadmill. So this idea is, is that you get on this treadmill at, at some point in your life, normally when you graduate. And at the beginning, you think to yourself, oh, man, if I could just make that, I don't know, I don't even know what it would be in today's money. But like, <laughs> you know, if I could just make 30,000 pounds a year, yeah. that would be like all the money I would ever need in my life. Yes. I'd be so happy and I'd be able to do all the things and I'd be so content and I can't wait. And then like a few years later, you you do. And then you're like, I'm really happy for about, I don't know, six months to a year maybe two years if you're good and then you think i could just make forty thousand, and then and 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 that all sounds like very innocent but then what you do is you later on in life you start meeting people who are like earning because that's what it is about part of the corporate lifestyle right is that your earning potential is so much higher Mm. who are earning a quarter million pounds a year and who are living on that as if it would be impossible for them to not live on it yeah and then you catch yourself doing it it's like um, the way we become desensitized to violence. Mm-hmm. You can become desensitized to like money and mm-hmm. to wealth and to achievements and just want more and more and more. Yeah. And it's like it's being aware of that, I think. Do you think one of the effective ways of unshackling from that and that psychology is to have a mandate that is bigger than yourself that creates the kind of conditions for courage. But I think the idea of having a motivation, mm. having something that allows you to step out of the day to day and give you perspective is what you need. Yeah, absolutely. Because I recognize that I am saying this from an extreme place of privilege, but also witnessing um, my parents who in 2008 lost everything in the global financial crash. And wow. we went from being you know, wealthy and money not being something that we had to think about after they had spent 30 years kind of accumulating and both, you know, coming from poor backgrounds. That's devastating. literally in a matter of, I think it was eight days, suddenly an enormous debt. And we're kind of looking around like, you know, what can we sell? What can we do? Where do we we move from here? And it was – their incredible entrepreneurial kind of spirit, which I feel like I've carried into my own life, which was they looked at the one asset we still had, which was our home. And they said, we're going to turn it into a wedding venue. Like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to invite people to come here and get married. And from there, managed to rebuild, turn it into a business. And it was like, it was that kind of grit and tenacity, which I think imbued me in those moments where, you know, two years ago, having 73 pence in my bank account, I didn't, start spiraling I was like well we're just going to make this work because it's not about what I'm doing tomorrow it's about the bigger picture and things will work themselves out and it's it's part of what I try to instill in some of the passionate young people I work with because I feel like immediately as you mentioned one of the the enormous barriers is okay but how does this fit into the nine to five you know I, I really care about this cause I really care about this mandate but you know I'm feeling this enormous pressure to make this certain figure even at the expense of my own happiness and my own sense of fulfillment from having that mission because I think that a lot of people in my situation that I've met, so like who, who grew up maybe without that kind of money with different parents, it, you know, their parents always try to instill in them this idea of you've got to, you know, you've got to create security, you've got to mm. create stability. They're, they're like 20 something and they're deciding what to do and they're thinking, you know, my parents want me to buy a house, I need to buy a car, I need to support my family. I need to, and these are 
all absolutely legitimate things. Yeah. And you're so miserable. Yeah. You know, and it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't have, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's really sad actually mm. um, because I think that's, that's how you just become a bit of a zombie walking through your life and that's part of why we're in this situation, right? Yeah, and I think it's the nature of the education system as well and it's part of the reason, similarly, uh, I could really relate to your story of, you know, moving from the UK where you were thriving to going into the American system where you're like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> yeah. Because um, I... Why I, can't I do math? Yeah. <laughs> so I had a similar experience, which was completely self-imposed, but moving from school in the jungle at the green school, which is all about fostering your innate talent and your passion and following your curiosity. And it's very much you are the custodian of your own learning to a system in France where it was so bureaucratic. There was so much red tape it was literally like one day in our English class which in itself was a joke um and which I failed for speaking Australian English um we watched Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times which shows the factory workers going through um the works as these kind of like sheep that are completely mindless and I was looking around at my peers thinking like we are those worker bees like in this system like we are perpetuating this um every class was you know being dictated to from the front of a classroom out of a textbook taking notes mindlessly it was it's it's a tragic tragic system and I feel so privileged to have gone through that system at green school because I then had the objectivity to go into the system in France and say like this isn't actually about me even though it brought into conflict so many of the ideas that I had about myself because in green school I'd been such a high achiever and super smart and whatever and then suddenly I'm in a system where I'm like just doing terribly you know but I think with that, so many young people go through similar education experiences where they come out the end feeling really stupid. And that is because they themselves have learned to plaster over all of that curiosity, all of that questioning, all of that passion. So I was very lucky. So I don't know if you've heard of something called Landmark, the mm-hmm. Landmark Forum. Yeah. Right. So my, um, my mentors slash teacher in high school his wife was a vp of landmark one of the very first so what we learned in that course was landmark mm. but but for young people i learned how to listen i heard I learned how to communicate non-judgmentally i learned how to understand that there are stories that you tell about the world and they're not necessarily true i learned um how to be courageous about issues like you know this was, we're talking, you know, I graduated in 2001. So late nineties, no one was out in our school, but you know, we had L- like the LGBT, like local kind of community forum come and talk to us. We went to the, the, the hospital where they discovered the AIDS virus, you know, and we talked to people who were HIV positive. Just imagine if everyone had that, how well equipped they would be yeah. to go into the world. It has been reflected in some of the research, early stage research that we've done with young people in the UK. One of the biggest barriers for them is not feeling like they have a voice in society. And I realize upon reflection in my own life that one of my greatest strengths and one of the things that has uh, really propelled me is the ability to tell my story and the confidence in my own story Mm -hmm. and how the failures have served me and the mistakes have have served me. I suppose, what would your invitation be for young people looking to tell their stories better? You have to get through the first draft. You know, the first time you speak or write or think your own narrative, it's not going to be good. 
you know, it, it, it just won't. And, and anyone who tells you otherwise is just lying. They, it, <laughs> they just are. You have to get through your shitty first draft. Mm. That's it. Whether you're writing, whether you're speaking, whatever you're doing. But don't do it in the most vulnerable place. Be smart about it. Choose it. Choose it in a, to, to kind of get that version out, speak it, say it, whatever, in a place of relative like low risk um, and not a huge amount of vulnerability so that when you get to a place where you are, you know, you know, challenging yourself to be more vulnerable, it's you have more experience speaking it. Life is sort of a series of shitty first drafts, isn't yes. it? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I think the thing that you don't realize when you're doing your city first draft is how boring it becomes <laughs> when it's really good. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, there's, yes, there's a real joy to mastery. Absolutely. I, I agree. But the thing is, is if you just lived in a life of mastery, you would never, ever be doing something new. Mm. I mean, that keeps so many of us from realizing our goals and our ideas and and being courageous is that fear of outcome and that attachment to expectation. And I remember, and I feel like that that moment after you give the speech or you push yourself out of your comfort zone, that is the most critical moment, more so than anything else in that process. Um, when I did my first kind of public speaking stint it went really well because I was very well rehearsed and then that 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 response led me to being a bit of an upstart <laughs> and not bothering to rehearse the second mm. time which meant that when I got up on stage 30 seconds in I got the worst stage fright of my life because all of the words completely vanished yep. from my head and it was the most crippling experience of my life but it was also one of the most important because that key moment afterward I could have decided that's the last time I'm ever doing public speaking because that was so painful and humiliating yeah. and I put my heart out there and it was stamped on um but I chose to try again and I feel like that is super super key is realizing that like that the most essential ingredient in this kind of equation is the 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 comfort and the sort of like curiosity and joy for failure and for screwing up and trying yeah. again with my work with speakers I talk about the valley of death Right. So this is true for uh, writing, for rehearsing, for delivering your talk. Think of it as like a U shape mm -hmm. where um, or like a like a valley, exactly like a valley, like a U shaped curve where it starts lower, but the, the end is higher. Right. Um, when you start often just have the courage to start. So you start and you're pretty, pretty good. Right. Mm -hmm. Um and you think this is cool, it's good. So you keep going yep. and then you just get really bad. Mm. You just crash. Sometimes if I'm writing a talk or something, I'll, like, I'll have this great version come to me while I'm in the shower. <laughs> and, I'm, and I yeah. sound great <laughs> in the shower. And then I come back and I try to put it on paper and it's yeah. like totally yeah. <laughs> not good. That's when you're crashing into the valley of death. Mm. Most people stop there. They think, oh, see, I shouldn't have rehearsed. I shouldn't have even thought of it. I should have just been spontaneous on mm. the moment. Yeah. No, because that will mean you will always just be middle. Yeah, You have to push through the valley, keep going, keep writing, keep writing, keep whatever until you come up. And then you kind of break through. Mm. And then all of a sudden you are so much better than you even thought was possible. Yeah most people just stop in the valley. Yeah. They don't realize they're there. They think they've done something wrong because how could you be worse 
if you've been doing it more. It also speaks to the kind of like rose tinted lens through which we present incredible people in society and change makers and activists. And, and it's social media obviously perpetuates it, right? Like we want to put the best version of ourselves forward and I'm guilty of it as well. Like I don't ex- expose my vulnerabilities in the same way I do my wins. And I see that the, the, the negative consequences of that in young people who look to the Greta Thunbergs of the world and say, oh, but she's so courageous yeah. and she's so smart. And, you know, look at how she's able to stand up in that room of a thousand people, mm. you know, without breaking a sweat. I could never be her. I could never do what she does. Forgetting that her first step, her first action was literally planting her bum on the steps of Parliament alone, alone holding a cardboard sign, yeah. you know, and it's like, I feel like we have a responsibility as well to tell that journey a little better. I agree. I think not just for young people, you know, I think older people have a mm. real responsibility. So I was coaching recently a group of creatives um, uh, on pitching. I just don't know what they're looking for. Like the senior creative directors. Mm. We've just never seen them pitch. And I was like, excuse me. And they're like, we're never invited in to the pitches. I've never seen my creative director pitch. I just don't know what he's looking for. So I'm nervous. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. So then I went to talk to like another agency I was working with. And I talked to my partner who runs an agency. And and it was like, oh, yeah, I mean, our our junior people don't see us pitch because we're off doing that. Like they're, and I was like, how are they ever going to, how are they ever going to see the the progression? Yeah. How are they ever going to see you getting better? How are they ever going to see what you're looking for? How are they ever going to see that journey? Yeah. You know, even even earlier today, like I was I was at an event and I, I don't think this person did it maliciously at all, but it made me think. And I think it was true for them. I went out for them and I said, I thought your presentation was amazing. And I said, oh, I just wrote it yesterday. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I was a young person, I would feel so intimidated by yeah. this what you should actually say is yeah it was a little rough it's my first time delivering it but i've been thinking about this stuff for a long time yeah exactly. we never say stuff like no. that we just say yes i'm an amazing genius yes <laughs> how is that encouraging to like 100%. the people around us 100 percent. and i think you know it's something that i've been the beneficiary of working in the sustainability space is i've had incredible mentors like john elkington who have kind of taken me under their wing and not expected brilliance you know Mm. I've in much of the time that I was working at Volans and in that space I was entirely there to be a fly on the wall I was just absorbing and I was on this exponential learning curve and I think that is what has placed me where I am now but we need to create those opportunities for more curious young people who have the appetite because exactly as you said if you hand them the microphone and expect them to be brilliant and articulate and eloquent from point blank it is going to do nothing but reinforce negative self-beliefs that they Absolutely. have. This is, I think, the most important thing as well, is that determining who you listen to. Mm. Who Whose criticism are you listening to? Yes. So I love Bre- Brene Brown, right? Obviously, legendary TED speaker, you know, people, millions and millions and millions of views on her talks. Last year, towards the end of the year, she released a Netflix fe- special, mm. which is amazing, by the way. Yeah. And and it just, it hit me over the head. Like, it was like a wake up call. It was so good. And in it, she talks about this quote. It's this idea of like, when you're fighting for something, when you're putting yourself out there, when you're making yourself vulnerable, you're like a gladiator in the arena, mm. right? You're like, there's blood on your face, you're <laughs> cut, dirt, like, you know, you're tired, you're sweating. And then people just throwing stuff and yelling insults at you from the stands. It's pretty meaningless, Mm. right? Like if you spend all your time listening to those people, 
what's like what are you doing mm. you should only listen to the people who are in the arena with you yeah. who are in who are who are struggling and fighting you know the same thing that you are fighting yeah. or or at least are putting themselves out there yeah i think this is so important it's so easy to be an armchair critic yes it's so <laughs> easy to throw shade online like yeah. and fine but are you putting yourself out there are you making yourself vulnerable you know if you've got dirt under your fingernails and like blood on your face and you're sweating you have street cred <laughs> well, I wanna, I'm, I'm gonna listen i'm gonna yeah. be a bit more open to listening to you right i was recently listening to a podcast with boy and slat the um fellow who designed this technology to try and clean up ocean plastic and he was very candid about how difficult the first few years have been and the number of failures they've had to overcome and that only now have they developed a technology that is actually working in a super exciting way and he talked about dealing with those trolls and how easy when you face any problem it is to say it's too hard what you're doing is a mistake you're just putting a band-aid over the problem mm. you know all of these things and yet you have zero legs to stand on if you exactly as you said are being the armchair expert yeah. and you're not actually getting your hands dirty yeah we can all actually be really important and effective by being good allies you know particularly online but also offline like you don't have to be the one developing the technology or or speaking out in front of a crowd you can be the one making sure that that person knows that they're that they're loved them that their work is appreciated you can be the one who is kind of um addressing the trolls so the person doesn't have to do all the work you know the one bringing the conversation back mm. to the actual subject rather than letting it get derailed by online trolls. Speaking of critics, how have you dealt with critics in your own life other than those that exist within your own mind? Just so you know, the critics in my own mind, I call them gremlins. Gremlins. Yeah. I have a I have a there's a there's a like a like a grandfather gremlin, like the original gremlin. And he is the uh good enough gremlin. Mm. He's the one that says I'm not good enough. And then all his babies, all his little spawn gremlin are like you're not blank enough like you're mm. not smart enough you're not thin enough you're not rich enough you're not whatever enough mm. so that's that's my internal gremlins i think this is super interesting in the context of some of the work that um my mom has been doing okay. funnily enough so she's uh she works in the realm of psychotherapy okay. and her kind of sweet spot is unpacking the shadow and looking at the sh shadow self and and core destructive beliefs and we were unpacking my own uh, like core destructive beliefs mm. in this four hour marathon session. Um, and she picked up on a really interesting trend in other change makers, mm. quote unquote activists she's worked with, which is that our most consistent core destructive belief is I am not enough. I am not powerful enough. I am not doing enough. I am not good enough. And I think that is because so much of our sense of self and value and how we show up is defined by achieving these often impossible kind of problems. Yeah. And we project so much responsibility onto ourselves, carry the weight of the world. Yeah. Um, how have you managed some of your gremlins? And do you think there is something beneficial that they bring into the color of your life? I don't love my gremlins, but I accept them as being there. The most important thing I've been able to do is name them and identify them and know when they're speaking and know when I'm speaking. For so long, their voice was indistinguishable from the, my own voice. Because you do have voices in your head that say, hang on a second, is this right? You know, like good voices that are there to help you like judge risk and understand the world around you and say, you know, and say, is this really what you want to do? Or, you know, but 
they sound very similar to your gremlins and you have to do some work to distinguish that those voices that was like the first and most massive piece because i think then when you realize when you can separate out you can choose how to respond yeah right um it, it no longer just becomes something that overwhelms you you're like oh okay you're controlled by yeah. exactly it's like okay gremlin speaking am i gonna <laughs> listen today i'm gonna listen yeah tomorrow i'm not gonna listen yes. am i gonna let it upset me am i not the other thing was speaking about them mm-hmm. massive gremlins are powerful because they're secret yes yeah. and because they they derive their power from making you feel alone yeah exactly when you realize that everyone feels that way it's much they have much less power over you and then the third thing for me was i got angry i looked around and i saw very mediocre people claiming they were experts in the work i did and there i am fretting over whether i can even say i do this work and whether i have a legitimacy to even be in this space and i thought to myself you know what i'm not an expert sure because i don't even know what that means but I'm definitely better than these dudes. Mm. And if they can be here, I can be here. Mm. The, the more you succeed in life, the the you know, the know more you change the things you're doing, your gremlins are going to evolve with you. You don't outgrow them. They they grow with you. Mm. So maybe, you know, like the things that they were saying that you couldn't do when you started your career and you're now able to do, it's not like they go away. They just, they just grow. And now they tell you that the more adventurous things you want to do, you can't do. I found whenever I've encountered um like external critics in my own life Mm. if anything that has fueled me more um because i reconciled some of those (laughs) internal gremlins and it's almost like a you know putting the finger to the system if you want me to do something the best thing to do is tell me i I shouldn't do it (laughs) i love this i relate to it yeah i mean it's i mean it's it's not i think it's amazing that you had that conversation with your mom and you identified mm. that that change makers have these core destructive beliefs around not being good enough. I think there's I would add to that 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 as I said, the good enough takes different forms. And I can imagine that there's this core belief. I think when you add change makers who come who are women, mm. who are people of color or or what it might whatever it might be, the there's like added layer of not being good enough that comes from society mm. because because you're a change maker because you want to change maybe some of the injustices that you've experienced in the world yeah. and the world is telling you you're not good enough to do that that's part of the injustice right mm. so it's very there's there's a lot tied up in that yeah um and there's a lot that you have to overcome there one of the kind of core destructive beliefs that i've encountered in the classroom time and time again mm. is being too small to make a difference and the system is too broken the problems are too overwhelming what would your response be to some of the young people who are kind of beholden to that dystopian view of the future and their own smallness in the face of it and how have you kind of navigated that and, and what do you do when it feels like it's too much you have to find what you're good at and do that mm. and make the change there because mm-hmm. if everyone does that that's what works i was really involved in iranian politics and human rights campaigning i was really involved in working on refugee and migrant rights I, you know i when i was younger i was really involved in like global warming and animal rights and stuff and i always gave up because i couldn't i just i couldn't see a solution right i couldn't see it working because yeah there are all these hidden global power structures you're fighting against you don't even know they're there and you're fighting against them and that can feel really overwhelming and and i then i thought and then I, when i was in human rights i thought this is how i'm going to make a difference right this is the thing i'm going to do 
what I'm doing now is my best way to contribute to to empower and enable other people to be able to speak with their vo own voice to make a difference. My friend works for the UN in their human rights um, council, and she works in some pretty difficult situations. Her name's Paula. She's wonderful. I said, Paula, I'm losing my my faith in all this. How do you do it? And she said, every single person, every single one of us is a drop. Uh, all the efforts we make are a drop. We have no idea which drop is going to be the one that, ch that that like overflows, that changes the tide. And the one the people we hear about in the world are the drop that did that. So the Nelson Mandela's in the world are the drop. But he, he would not have been that drop if all the ones had not come before. So you just keep going and and like dripping into this bucket of change, knowing that eventually it fills up um, and not knowing who it's going to be the one that, that like makes it overflow. And I don't know why, but that has sustained me for a very long time. Paula is so wise. Paula is so wise. <laughs> I'm going to send this to Paula and tell her how yes, amazing Paula. she is. Paula is just, yeah, everyone should listen. To, everyone should have a Paula in their life, basically. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's another thing I'd love to talk about is like tribe and community. <sighs> but what you touched on is also having that kind of container. And it's, it's what, you know, we try to instill in the young people we work with is, you know, if you try to spread yourself thin across all of the things, all of the causes, you're just going to burn out, you're going to feel overwhelmed, and you're going to reinforce your own feeling of kind of like tokenism in the face of these challenges. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a story and a myth that is perpetuated by the sustainability industry every time you're told to turn off the lights when you leave a room or change your light bulbs or in the social justice space that signing a petition is enough, mm -hmm. right? And so that that whole mode is kind of broken. When we find focus and when we go really deep with something and use, as you said, what you're naturally good at and gifted at and passionate about as a kind of conduit mm. for that, you create the, the container to be able to download and get deep into the problem without becoming entirely disenfranchised. Yeah. But you have to be careful with one thing with doing that. We can become so passionate and focused on the thing we're working on at the exclusion of others. So what it needs is for you to say, I am working on you know working with young people on climate change and this person is working on carbon drawdown and this person is working on human rights and that person is working on you know economic justice and every single one of us is as important as the other and yes. every single one of us has to succeed and so in my movement i'm going to make room for that mm. because i want them to make room in their movement for me yes. right so i remember working with this incredible woman um juno mack she's a sex worker she works on sex worker rights and she just said, if you care about human rights, if you care about economic justice, if you care about sustainability, if you care about, you know, the rights of women, if you mm. care about LGBT rights, if you care about all of these different things, welcome us into your movements because yeah. we are part of that conversation yes. too. So it's this idea of like being a, a connected container, yes, if that makes sense. Exactly. But what I've seen in the past that really is I think not been constructive is where people get really focused mm. at the exclusion of everything else. Absolutely. And I think my, I was on the phone to my friend Chad Frischman the other day, who's the um, chief researcher at Project Drawdown. Mm. And we were talking about silos and bubbles because Drawdown was such a breakthrough in thinking for me because suddenly climate change 
as this kind of like alienating, overwhelming challenge was suddenly made super available and accessible yeah. by the diversity of the problems, but also the solutions and saying no matter whether you want to look at food waste management or education for girls mm. or women's reproductive rights, every piece of that is an essential part of that program. And one of the things, one of the ways that Project Drawdown's often misappropriated is that, you know, there are a hundred of the top solutions and people go, okay, well, we just need to do the top 10 because they're the most important. And what Chad's always reemphasizing is like, no, 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 no. It's entirely across the board. Like everyone needs to be activating mm. across each of these areas. And we were talking about silos and bubbles. And he was saying, you know, instead of being in these bubbles, we almost need to be in this like bubble bath. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Chad. Yeah. I love the bubble bath. I mean, you would love Chad. You guys yeah. would get along really, really well. But that's it. It's like we need to it, it, it kind of all weave together and like mm. be part of this matrix and, and invite one another into our movements. And it's stunning how often I hear that story perpetuating that but climate change is the most important thing and it's like climate change is a symptom and one of the solutions is making a more effective kind of society it's yeah. reinstating our humanism you know it's reinstating our humanity yeah right yeah, yeah and yeah. and so you can't you <laughs> like that's the very reason why we're in this problem in the first place is that mechanistic thinking you told a great story to me the other day because i was telling you about how with open x and young people one of my real desires is to make sure that we can bring more people of color um, you know, urban young people of color uh, into the conversation around climate change because I think their voices are not heard and also they don't see themselves as a part of this. And you were saying how you've seen you've seen this in the classroom yeah. and how actually the way to get people who have almost other priorities yeah. is to see this as part of it. It's not just that climate change is part of everything they care about, mm. is that everything they care about is also part of Exactly. Like, like they will reach their aims through these as well, right? Exactly. And it's shifting to how are we creating an invitation to people that is about well-being because, mm. you know, it's super easy to remain in your kind of like tier of privilege, right? And think about, okay, but, you know, how am I shopping at Whole Foods? And, you know, <laughs> what, how am I doing these things? Whatnot. The reality for the vast majority of people is, you know, they're thinking about how to make it through to the end of the week, right? How to get food on the table, how to keep the lights on, how yeah. to look after their children. How are you crafting an inclusive inclusive narrative for those people how are you improving their lives rather than asking them to care about something that is entirely existential and at this point in time is not already on our doorstep for tedx london women we worked with this incredible economist and environmentalist angela um at, at francis at the wwf and she talks about this exactly this idea of of what the gilets jaunes protesters in france were talking about which were saying you want us to care about the end of the world we we're we you know we're worried about the end of the week mm. and her point is, it's not about edging climate to the top of people's agenda. Mm. It's about showing them how the solutions to climate also provide the solutions to the things already on their agenda. And I thought exactly. that is really different. Yes, exactly. And they don't have to be separate. That's the magical no. thing. <laughs> no. Um, you asked about criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you one thing about criticism is um, I look for some of it now. I seek it out. Mm. Sometimes for TEDx we get criticism like from people who who've either attended or just are online saying too diverse <laughs> too diverse felt like a diversity and inclusion training and i was like first of all you should be so lucky that your diversity and inclusion trainings are this amazing <laughs> and second of all cool yeah like awesome like if you you know if someone someone once said i didn't learn anything new here i was like okay well that's really good because you live in like a progressive amazing bubble and i want to live in that world with you because i learned stuff new things here so i think sometimes you you can get so wrapped up with those kinds of criticisms those kinds of things of when 
when actually you have to decide like okay so you're not going to please everyone when you're putting stuff out into the world what kind of feedback do you want Mm -hmm. you know if i'm pissing off the right people then i'm doing a good job how do you tow that line like how much energy do you exert trying to change mindsets and persuade people and to what degree do you just say actually no this is my emphasis like that's my audience do i preach to the choir is basically it right am i happy preaching to the choir i think there's two things one is sometimes the choir just needs a bit of motivation and if we can be that i'm okay because mm-hmm. you know what i get tired sometimes with the deluge of like negativity out there sometimes you need to sit in a room with people who see the world the way you see the world and tell you about how you can how we can solve the big problems yes. about how they have made positive change that all of our speakers have to do one of three things if not more uh impact people's knowledge their attitudes or their practice um not everyone will do all like very few people will you know so actually then you're not just preaching to the choir because the way you influence people is so different each person brings so much difference basically i think you can divide the public into four basic categories left right leaning to the left leaning to the right all pollsters will tell you that almost every single issue out there that's the four categories that people fall into um and you cannot message the same way to either any of the groups. Mm. The messaging that works for the people who are, who are already on the left turns off the people leaning to the left. But the messaging for the people leaning to the left turns off the people in the left. Hmm. Right. So we used to do this on immigration messaging around migrants being grateful and being here to, you know, contribute to society and work hard and loving being in the UK really worked to people leaning to the left and really pissed the rest of us on the left off. <laughs> right. Because you're like, why do they have to be grateful? <laughs> like what for the racism? Right. So yeah. I realized that actually it's OK to have different audiences and different messages will work. It's the both and. Mm. The only way it works is if you really want people to be coming over to your way of seeing the world, you have to accept the fact that different groups, different organizations are going to have to communicate in different ways to different audiences. And if we see each other all as like, instead of seeing each other as competing, if we see each other as just having different targets and mm. all pushing in a, in a different way, yeah. it's much more effective. Yes, because we have the tendency to say, well, that messaging doesn't work and Greta's too angry. And it's like, actually, no, like we need everyone at action everyone, stations. Everyone. The difference being a campaigner and being an activist. Mm. An activist holds the, for me, an activist holds the line. An activist is at the far side of the Overton window or whatever you want to use, holding the end. They, they are the utopia, like they are the, the, the goal, right? They're uncompromising and they're angry and they're loud and they get your attention and that's exactly what they should do. Campaigners work with people along the spectrum, pushing them a little bit further towards that person. Interesting. You need both. Yeah. You can't have one. If 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 you only have campaigners, there's no way to go. And if you only have activists, people are still just stuck yeah. where they are. So yeah. you we need to see ourselves more as an ecosystem working together rather than people competing. What do you think some of the most essential ingredients are then for persuasion and influence? Taking time to understand why you're speaking and why someone might be listening and how what they care about in the world mm. what is your core message like what is the one thing you want to get across uh who is your audience what how do they think about the world who are they why they're listening what motivates them how can you get them to care which is bringing those two things together how do you bring what you're saying alive with stories and 
Why do you care about this? And why are you excited about it? It's, it's, it's bringing all of that stuff together is how you influence and persuade people. It's too lazy to say, well, it's important. <laughs> it's important to you. Yeah. But even that's too lazy. Even just yeah. saying it's important to me. Why? Yeah. Why is it? Tell me about yourself. We connect because of stories, right? For example, I don't think it's my job to convince people that as a woman, I have a right not to be sexually assaulted. Right? Um, but there are people who believe that. So what do you do? That's where I think allies come in. Mm. It's the job of my male allies to do that convincing. Yeah. Right? Just like I don't think trans people need to defend their right to exist. But you know what? As an ally to trans people, I can do the work of having conversations with people who have problematic points of view and getting them to understand why that maybe isn't the right way to think. Yeah. In some issues, you can be an activist. In some issues, you can be a campaigner. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a super important distinction that you make because it creates fluidity, which is super, super important. On the topic of tribe and community, because mm. I know that this is a theme that you speak to a lot, um, I would love to learn a little more about the tribe that you've built around yourself and the role of having a tribe to create the found foundations upon which you can go out in the world and test your ideas and open yourself up to critics. Because I think this can feel like such a lonely task yes. if you're not surrounded by people who can kind of validate your assumptions, but also, you know, share the same values. And yet it's only with that kind of foundation that you can then go out and be provocative yeah. and open yourself up to questions and, yeah. you know, challenging your mindset. I think it's important to have a champion. I don't mean a cheerleader. I don't mean an advocate. You know, I don't mean a coach. I mean a champion. Someone who believes in you, but is also willing to do the work to help you get there and who is there with you. And it's not your mum. Like my mum is a big champion <laughs> of mine, but she's not my champion because she's my mum. Mm. She does other things that make her my champion. I, a, a lot of young women I work with um, will ask me what my f biggest piece of advice is. And I'm like, if you are attracted, if you are straight or bi, be very careful who you date in your life if you want to be successful and make change. Because they will, they will derail you so quickly. In what ways? Undermining you. Why are you so focused on your work? Why is your work more important than me? Why, you know, this idea, this assumption, this thing that I think a lot of um, a lot of straight women face, women who date men, a lot of things that we face is this idea, especially for those of us who are active and outspoken and dynamic. And there's this assumption that like, you were like that before you met me, but now you've met me, you're going to calm down, right? What do you mean you're still going to be out there, you know, working nights and doing this and focusing on that? It is so easy to get derailed by it. I see it all the time. It's so funny that you're saying this because I had this experience last year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see it all the time. Yeah. And it's like, and it's, and it's, it was so nuanced at first. It was just like, it was subtleties in like how I was dressing and how I was acting around that person. And then like, suddenly it starts like snowballing and you're like, suddenly I'm compromising on the very things that make me really happy and that defined me pre-relationship. Yeah. All relationships are compromised, right? Mm -hmm. But what are you compromising? If the, the very thing that attracted the person to you is your voice and then they expect you to, sh to shut that down when you're with them, then they weren't really attracted to that, right? They were attracted to some kind of veneer. This is all This is all of the things around the changing gender roles, around the expectations we have, around the fluidity of gender and sexuality. These things make it very, very hard 
but we still live in a patriarchy. So we can still all fall victim to it. Mm. It speaks to a much wider kind of narrative around compromise and sacrifice yeah. and, and regret, you know, and, yeah. and, I think that can be super powerful. It's like projecting into the future and looking back at your life in the present moment and thinking, would I have regretted the decision that I'm about to make? And let's not forget that some of the most misogynistic and abusive men I have ever come across in my life work for social change. They are human rights lawyers. They are activists. They are people who are praised and lauded on the outside for the amazing work they do and the way they treat women in their private life is so despicable. It was the biggest lesson I learned when mm. I when I was 18. It was like, it opened my eyes in a way that I just will never be closed again. Mm. There is greater license given to them, if anything. Yes, because, because they're, they're working, working for their cause, the cause. The cause. <laughs> yeah, look at Oxfam, look at Save the Children, look at all these scandals that came through. You know, yeah. this was exactly the way those men were behaving. And, and they were given that license because what they were doing was seen as so important. Mm. Those men, did not become that way all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. They were slowly allowed to be that way over time. And as you said, just as it is the responsibility of men to stand for equality for women and to call out bad behavior, yeah. so too is it my responsibility as a cis white woman to stand up for people in the LGBTQ yes. plus community and you know take on that responsibility as my own. And I think none of us can sit idly by and watch the world go by and say, well, it's not my position, it's not my role, it's not my story. No, it's I'm part of the fabric of the society that we want to create. We're all struggling together. And sometimes we have to stand up for our trans sisters. Sometimes we have to stand up for our black sisters. Sometimes we have to stand up for the men in our lives. But we all have to do it together. Who you choose to surround yourself with is going to be so important in what you're able to do because relationships drain you or they sustain you. And it is hard when you're young. You know, when you decide to cut people out of your life, people react really badly. But you know what? It's so important to be careful. I really like Star Trek. And I always used to think about it as who is my bridge crew, mm. right? If I'm the captain, who's my bridge crew? <laughs> who's my number one? Yeah. Who's my counselor? Who's my doctor? Who's my engineer? Who's my, you know, language? Like all, and, and but, but also like, well, who are the people I need in my bridge crew to be able to commit, complete this mission? And, and those should be the closest people to me. And I don't mean professionally, I mean personally. Well, what do you want your legacy to be, Mariam? I created space for people to learn how to speak to bring about change. That's what I want my legacy to be. Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Mariam Pasha. You can learn more about Mariam and TEDx London in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know how you plan to find your tribe. Ahead of our next and last episode for the season with James Arbib on rethinking the system. Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Feruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.